The second thing you can do is take a drink of tea because your voice just cracked. Like a baby's. Hello and welcome to Writing in Faith, a podcast about the Christian and writing life. I'm your host, Daniel Didek, and this week we're continuing our talk about our journey of faith and writing by looking at obstacles to our ministry. What do we do when we feel called a certain direction, but continually come up against roadblocks? Do we press on as though it were a trial, or turn aside as though we misunderstood the call? These are sticky questions, but ones well worth considering before we come to those bridges, so let's see if we can answer them today. Well, folks, here at the Didac household, even during coronavirus, it has been another really solid week. Still keeping on with drafting book four and actually set up a meeting with my alpha readers to discuss book three as well. So I'll be able to make any changes to that that I need to. But book four fell a little bit behind, had a couple days that I didn't get as much written as I wanted to, but I'm on track to catch back up to meet my word count by the end of the week. So I'm super excited about that. But the other big thing that's been going on is that I've been working on refining my website. My wife had picked up a book on marketing uh, called Sell Your First Thousand Copies or something like that or Your First Thousand Copies, one of those two. And he had talked about setting up a newsletter. And it was something that, much like the website, I kind of fought against it for a while. I hoped I wouldn't have to do that. Um, just because it's another layer of work that I got to try to figure out and learn and do. And sometimes, you know, when you're trying to learn too many things at once, it can become a little bit much. College students know what I mean. I'd heard a lot of good things about websites and I balked at that and was just trying to do things on Twitter and Facebook. And then finally, I think, or I was going to sign up to do a local author fair and on the registration form or the application form, they asked you to put your website. And I just, for some reason that time, it felt weird putting in my Facebook page. So I was like, you know what? Let's just look into building a website, see how much it costs. And maybe let's just go ahead and do it. And I could not be more pleased with the results. I'm very, very happy with my website. I used Wix to create my website and there was, you know, one of the templates that I chose that already had included a subscriber's form. And I was like, okay, whatever, you know, we'll leave it there just because that's kind of, you know, maybe it'll be something I'll do. It won't be that often though. You know, it's just kind of when important things come up or whatever. But then, you know, I read this book and it talked about how effective newsletters are and also how to do it well. Um, I think that's more important. You know, this isn't just about getting numbers. Certainly I want to sell more copies of my book than I have, but you know, he talks about, you know, making the connections with people. And, you know, this has enabled me to kind of provide, so when you sign up for my newsletter, you'll get a free short story that's from the world that the Triumvirus series is set in. It's set in the world of Oren, and it actually takes a piece of history that we catch very briefly in By Ways Unseen about long, long ago in, in Hewellux and in Buring's past. But it's kind of cool because it starts out with the line from the book to kind of draw that connection for you of this is a story you're kind of going to get to hear. And then it really develops. It's still, you know, just kind of a glimpse into that history. It doesn't, it doesn't give you the entire history that the line suggests, but it, it gives you a story from that time. So it's, it's really cool. I really like it. I think it's a pretty good example of my writing, but in short format and it's free. So you can go to the website, you can subscribe to the newsletter. The very first one you'll get will be this, this introductory kind of newsletter with this free short story. You can download it, 
uh, for either Kindle, just on straight on PDF, or for iBooks, uh, an EPUB version. So whatever e-reader you use that uses EPUB format, you'll be able to download it and read it and uh, and see if you like it. So this past week, I've been kind of working on ironing out some some bugs with that, and then today I started working on some of the SEO stuff, getting found on Google and making sure that like the website has the content on it that it needs to show up well. So I'm getting pretty excited about that. I've already had a whole slew of subscribers after doing a couple things on Facebook and on Twitter. My wife did as well. So it's pretty exciting. So that's been really fun this week that all that's kind of set up and it's looking more and more professional each time I work on it. So that's been, you know, kind of a cool and kind of bigger thing. That's uh, that's the update for this week. Happy April. Welcome to the month of spring. So for today, as I mentioned in the intro, we're talking about our journey. Uh, a little bit more. And more specifically this time, anytime you set out on the journey, you're going to run into obstacles. Whether it's, you know, a journey in your actual car, you're just taking a road trip somewhere, you know, you can run into construction or, you know, you got to stop and get food or stop and get gas and things can happen. And in life, in our spiritual journey, as we try to follow the call on our lives from God that we talked about last week, and in our writing life, you know, things are going to happen that kind of slow us down, maybe stop us entirely. We've got to assess those. We're going to jump straight into the verse today, and we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. In this passage, Luke is writing an account of the Acts of the Apostles, and which is kind of a history of the very early church from Jesus' ascension to heaven to the imprisonment of Paul in Rome. And by chapter 16, Luke has begun traveling with Paul on his missionary journeys, and he relates this story, starting, as I mentioned, in verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So here we see Paul and his companions coming up against obstacles to their journey, trying to preach in one area but being unable to, and so they head for another area only to be denied there and finally receiving a vision of where to go. The first thing to note, and a good question to ask ourselves whenever we find our path blocked, is who is doing the blocking? We see in this passage that the Holy Spirit kept them from preaching in Asia, and then the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow them to enter Bithynia. We may well ask ourselves, how do we know when it's the Holy Spirit, and how do we know when it's our enemy? Determining this is the ultimate key in determining whether we need to persevere, which we do in the face of Satan's attacks, and when we need to pray for new direction, which we do when God himself is opposing us. So let's make a general observation as a way to start thinking about this. Satan's goal is always to isolate you. First, from fellow believers. Second, and ultimately, from God. He does this in several ways. Pride and self-focus, condemnation, and guilt. His favorite one-two punch is to tempt you into sin and then make you feel like you're not a Christian because you sinned. That's guilt and condemnation. Another popular way to isolate you from God is to distract you with fear and worry about what's going on around you. Part of that is often making you feel helpless, which is a type of pride and certainly one of self-focus. So let me shatter your illusion now. You are helpless in and of yourself. There is very little that you can do alone against what is going on in the world. It's fascinating to me how popular superhero movies are these days. 
But I guarantee it's because people see everything that's going on around the world, feel like they can't do anything about it, and so escape into this fantasy of either becoming or there arising some being or group of beings who can do something about it. Equally fascinating to me is the mix of superheroes, particularly in the Avengers. Some are minor gods, some of them are born the way they are, some are made that way by science or tech or money. Probably an equal part of this popularity is because the Marvel Cinematic Universe is just very well written, and I don't want to discount that. But even more fascinating to me than all that are the stories of some of our theological giants, from Augustine to Luther to Calvin to maybe even Billy Graham, Ravi Zacharias, or Francis Chan. Any of these theologians, pastors, whoever, their story began, more often than not, by some relatively unknown Christian who spoke the right word to the right person, and that word kept going until it lit a fire in one of these greats who've gone on to impact hundreds of thousands and sometimes millions of people for the kingdom. This is the modern miracle of turning five loaves and two fishes into food for 5,000. And it's because of God and someone's obedience to him, not because of us ourselves. So when you're standing in front of your obstacle, ask these sorts of things first. What are the ramifications of turning away? Will I feel further from God? Will I also have to abandon a greater call that I already know is on my life? Paul and his companions did not have to completely stop preaching when they turned away from various places. They simply didn't preach there, but they kept moving. This is also a great time to revisit why you think you were called there. Was it a passage of scripture? Read it again in quiet and prayer. Is the passion still there? Maybe it was the word of a pastor or friend. Now, today, is there a different way to interpret what they said or apply what they said to your life? God tells us countless times throughout all scripture to remember, and this is exactly why. It is far too easy to lose our passion once we move away from the spark or the fire that kindled it in us at the first. As we go, it can get darker and darker until we wonder if there was ever a fire to begin with. By remembering, we can enliven that spark or fire, but also by remembering, we give ourselves the chance to realize our error and move into God's true will, not what we bent it to be, because back there and back then, it was something we really wanted to do. Another interesting aspect to this passage that we read is where it started. Back in chapter 15, verses 36 through 41, the impetus for this journey, we read, was Paul's desire to revisit the churches they had begun and strengthen them. So one possible scenario that might have been going on during this journey was that Paul had in his mind to go over old ground, which is why he tried to continue to move through Asia. But God had a different plan. It's possible, and this is purely speculation on my part as a story writer, that Paul was stuck so fast in his mind to stay in Asia that, even though I'm sure he prayed, he was continuing on the assumption that his plan was a good one, even as he was opposed by the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus. Finally, in Troas, perhaps frustrated by this continued opposition, Paul put himself finally in a position to receive this vision and learned that God intended this journey to be the time that the gospel finally made it to what would become modern-day Europe. I do find it interesting that, as Paul continued to journey, he continued to the point where finally where God actually wanted him to go was just across the sea. Now, it is equally possible that Paul was earnestly seeking direction from God and just never received the full plan until he finally came to Troas. That as he prayed, he felt nudging in a certain direction and went, assuming that was the final destination, only to be told, no, not here. And as he kept bumping into the will of God, he kept sliding further and further west until Macedonia was nearer by. The important point I want to make with all of this is for you and I to not assume our calling. When we encounter an obstacle, we can revisit our initial intentions and make sure they are from God first. Are we following our own will and hoping it aligns with God? Or are we sure that we are purely seeking God's will at the first? 
Only you can answer that. And if you're fully convinced that, yes, you had no personal motivations behind your initial assumption, great. Keep on and keep seeking God and trust that as you continue to seek and move, he will eventually make clear to you what his initial intention was the whole time. If not, if what you sought at first was closer to your will than God's, don't despair. It's entirely possible that God has used your selfish intentions to still get you to the place he needs you to be. Seek him humbly and earnestly now with full submission and see what vision he brings you. I'll close out this portion with a personal example uh, from back in 2015 when I was newly single and looking for direction in my own life, as I actually had the freedom then to pursue it. One thing God had spoken to me in the fall of 2014 was that I had long ago smothered my passions out of fear of being disappointed. As I pondered those things, a verse came to mind that said, Do whatever is in your heart to do, for I am with you. When I finally looked up the actual passage, I found it was not God who was saying it. The verse came from 1 Samuel 14, verse 7, which says, Do all that you have in mind, his armor-bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you heart and soul. This was when Jonathan had determined to go up against the Philistines. But even as I realized it was not truly a promise from God, but rather the words of an armor-bearer to his master, I still felt compelled that God had brought the verse to me as his promise during this particular time of rediscovering and pursuing my passions. And so I set out a list of goals for the year 2015, with four or five minor steps in pursuing each of those goals. Printed them out on a page and attached it to my door so that every time I left my room, I could glance over them. My plan was to stay in the scripture and in prayer, and if at any time I felt like my passion for a goal was fading, or there were arising too many obstacles to a certain goal, I could strike it out. The idea was, at the end of the year, to see which goals I had actually achieved and which I had not, and begin to refocus my life around those passions. So in doing all that, and at the advice of a friend, I had added to my goals to go on a missions trip with my church to Mexico City that summer, and for a while I pursued it. But after a few weeks, the passion and desire for that goal faded, and hard. Anytime I looked at it, contemplated it, imagined what it would be like to achieve it, I could find no desire in it. Eventually, and against my friend's ardent advice, I canceled my involvement and struck out the goal. Another several weeks went by, and one morning during my quiet time, I suddenly stopped and realized my mind was too filled with distractions and I wasn't truly paying attention to what I was reading. So I put down my devotion, sat back and closed my eyes and cleared my head of what was distracting me. The instant my mind was clear, I heard very clearly God saying, go to Mexico City. Of course, I fought it. The team was leaving in a week and a half or two weeks. I hadn't attended most of the meetings they wanted members to attend. I had my plane tickets still, though I had planned to use them to travel elsewhere. But I thought there was no way to get ready in so short a time that there would be no way I'd still have a hotel room. It just couldn't work. And that's when God convicted me with these words. I wouldn't ask you to do something that couldn't be done. So like the good Gideon I was, I set God a test. In a few days was a large outdoor two-day fair kind of thing in a nearby town. Several streets lined with vendors and food and whatnot. I had already intended to go to this event, so I said, if I see my friend, who was incidentally the leader of the missions trip, at this event, I'll ask her if it's even possible to still join. I thought this event is large enough that if God does not actually intend me to go, it'll be easy enough to hide us from each other. Maybe she would only come the second day, or at a different time than I was going, or any number of things. But at the same time, it would be very easy to arrange our meeting if it was his will. And so I went. After a few hours there, I really started to think that I might get away with it. But then, sure enough, I turned a corner and saw my friend further down the sidewalk. I do feel bad for her, because I walked up and said very bluntly, You know, I hoped I wouldn't see you here today. Eventually, I was able to explain why I felt that way, and of course, I was able to go on the trip. Now, I consider this a great success of that year. My parameters had been that as long as I stayed in the Word and earnestly in prayer... 
God would reach through and direct me even if I spent some time not intending to do his will. Even though my ears were closed and my mind filled with a thousand other thoughts, he was able to nudge me to say, come, be quiet, and listen. And once I did, he spoke to me very clearly, clear enough that though I wanted to resist, I knew I should not. And so I continue to live in that attitude. I assume he has put passions and desires and abilities inside me that he intends me to use. Satan will either sow selfish passions and desires in there as well, or he will try to turn God's passions and desires into something only for myself. But if I continue to live in prayer and in scripture, God will make known to me which is which. It is that assurance that helps me through the obstacles I encounter, that and remembering why I am where I am today and how I got there and reassessing the potential impact for the kingdom to make sure I'm not just serving myself instead of God. I can't overstate the value of that process, praying, remembering, and reassessing, and doing it in that order. Without prayer, our minds may be too clouded to remember, or we'll cast that memory in doubt. If we pray but don't remember, we may be waiting for reassurance that he has already given us. If we don't reassess, we may continue to blunder along without the wisdom we've gained since that first calling. Perhaps the greatest danger, though, is if we jump straight to reassessing, which too easily turns into second-guessing. Outside the light of God's peace through prayer and remembering his faithfulness and calling, we can blunder through the darkness of mere re-evaluation and be swayed by every thought and emotion, end up in the attitude of, well, maybe I'll try this and see if it works. God's will is not so arbitrary as that, and neither are his promises. But we are, sometimes. Only by clearing our distractions and seeking God through prayer, remembering how God has shown himself to us in the past and what the words of his calling had been, and looking to see if any new words or experiences might shift our focus to something we had not or could not consider before, remember Paul kept seeking a way to preach in Asia, but was finally directed to go to new lands after a vision. Once we have sorted through any possibly new directions from God, we will best be able to decide to press on through any obstacles or to realize that God has put them in place to get our attention and turn us toward his will. I've had to do this numerous times while seeking to publish my fantasy series. And even today, after I've already gone well down the path of indie publishing, the same old questions arise. Was I supposed to? Did I give up too easily on traditional publishing? I thought I had offered my five loaves and two fishes to Christ, but I have yet to see the multitudes fed. There's a lot of assumptions and biases around the ways to publish, and today we're going to work through a lot of them and consider some key points in favor and against the various platforms. Most people, when thinking of a published book, think about traditional publishing, so we'll start there. Despite all the various ideas and biases out there, someone who is published by one of the big houses has inarguably made it in the publishing world. Whether you're a reader, writer, or indie author, and regardless of your disposition toward various publishing methods, no one believes an author with a traditional publisher is not a true author. This is inescapable. This writer has slogged through the trenches of querying agents with their manuscript pitches, hurdled the fences of editors and marketing teams, and brought their fight directly to the consumers at bookstores and online. Whether mid-list, making probably not actually enough to survive, or bestseller, making enough to purchase an armored tank like Tom Clancy and put it at the end of your driveway, these writers have convinced those deepest in the industry that their books will be popular enough to make enough money to justify printing and warehousing. Sometimes they flop. It is impossible to predict what the market will do year to year, but as we mentioned last week, if a person, agency, or house was incapable of understanding what constitutes good writing and a good story, they would be out of business. Now let's talk details. To become published by a traditional house, you will most likely need to find a literary agent first. There are some outliers who will take unsolicited manuscripts, so you just send them your book with a letter asking them to read it, but even those will generally suggest, as I do, that you find an agent to handle the legal details. 
Unless you're one of those rare breeds who understand exactly what your rights are as an author and can interpret legal documents and manage your career, you will not be ill-served by working with an agent. To get an agent, you'll need to scour the web for literary agencies and read every single agent's bio and or their submission guidelines or their agency's guidelines and make sure you send a proper query. Do not send your epic fantasy query to an agent who only accepts romance. And don't submit to every agent in the house unless that agency allows it. In my experience, they typically don't. They're not being mean, it's just that most agencies are fairly small and tight-knit, so if one agent receives a query that they particularly are not enthused about, but they think their coworker might be, they will often forward it to them at their discretion. And since all agents receive thousands of queries a year, making yours a duplicate will just be annoying, not plucky or tenacious. Here's obstacle number one. It is normal to receive dozens and even hundreds of rejections. This does not mean God does not want you to be traditionally published. It's just how the process works. There's two things you can do if every agent you found has rejected your book. First, find someone legit to critique your query. By legit, I mean someone in or as near to the industry as you can find, not your mom. Writing conferences are great for this. Often they'll have one-on-one -on -one opportunities, or you'll just run into agents here or there and you can practice your pitch. Tell them what your book is about as quickly as possible and listen to their feedback. The second thing you can do is write another book. Maybe the one you've written simply won't fit in the market right now. It doesn't have to go completely away, necessarily. But once you've landed the agent, you can talk about all the projects you have going on and see if any are worth developing. The point at this phase is to get better as a writer, practice querying, and eventually land an agent. A lot of things change once that happens. Now, there's a ton of other material out there on traditional publishing and finding an agent, so I'll leave that one alone for now. The second method of getting your work out into the world for people to read is self-publishing. This is where you pay a publishing house to publish your book. Here is a legitimate obstacle. There are seedy, scammy houses out there, so do your research. Read the negative reviews, every last one of them, and see if any sound legitimate or are just people coming in with unrealistic expectations. But if there's any talk in the reviews of products not being delivered, payments not being what they promised, or anything like that, take note. What self-publishers do offer, though, are various packages for editing, formatting, and marketing your book. These can get pricey, so do your homework on what it is you'll receive and make sure it adds value to you. If your spelling and grammar skills are on point and the only editing they offer is spelling and grammar, you could probably pass on that. If what they offer is more structural editing, so telling you what scenes are unnecessary or drag on longer than they should, that could very well be worth the price. The point is to know what it is you want and do your best to only pay for that. Don't go into it blindly, and don't go into it if you don't want any control over your final product. Because of the scamminess of some of these places, and partially the nature of business is to make as much money as possible, so they're typically going to try to sell you their priciest package, self-publishing has a bit lower of opinion among writers and authors, perhaps even lower than indie publishing, because of an unfortunate history of taking advantage of writers. But they can offer a one-stop shop for a very professional-looking final product, and a background of marketing that the average person does not have. So, if you have the front money, this is an entirely viable option. Indie publishing has come a long way since the early days, but it has also retained many of the problems that gave it such a bad name early on. Because of how easy it is for anyone to make a work of writing available on Amazon, there is a ton of crap out there. Even the stuff that isn't terrible is sometimes just weird. If misspelling and grammar errors detract from your reading experience, the field of good books narrows even further. Finding an indie book that might be confused with a traditionally published book is a quixotic quest on most days. A couple reasons this is changing. 
there is a whole host of new industry cropping up, offering editing, cover art, formatting, marketing help. If you're serious about publishing your book on your own and you want it to not look like something you made in second grade, there's a ton of affordable help and advice out there. So the industry is simply seeing more and better written and published books than it used to. Another reason this is changing is that even some traditional authors are indie publishing certain works or series Depending on market fit, the permission of their publishers, who almost always retain the rights of first refusal, and the advice of their agents. This might be a bit of a chicken and egg phenomenon. Is the view of indie publishing improving because of trad authors, or are trad authors indie publishing because the opinion of indie publishing is changing? In my humble and barely researched opinion, it's likely more of the latter. There are a number of massive successes of indie authors who are putting up truly best-selling numbers. Not just best-selling in some obscure category, but New York Times-level numbers of copies sold, as more and more people are recognizing that the establishment sometimes overlooks good art. This is happening not just in books, but even photography, art, music. Almost every conceivable creative medium has seen a surge of indie artists and new consortiums who support them. The obstacle for indie publishing is, oftentimes, marketing. You see it as a staggering lack of sales, but honestly, it's probably because no one knows about it. This, too, does not mean God does not want you to indie publish. Despite the miracles of Jesus, God does not disdain hard work as much as some of us seem to act like he does. Let's take a quick look at what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 27. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Being in God's will does not necessarily mean freedom from discomfort or the need to work hard. Obstacles are going to come, but sometimes, as we said earlier, things that we want to call obstacles are really just the way things work. Rejections from agents are normal, paying for services rendered by a self-publishing house are expected, and spending hours and hours learning how to create, publish, market, and sell your own work is par for the course. There will probably be plenty of opportunities during all that to pray, remember, and reassess your plans and God's steps. I encourage you to do so. That's all for this week. Join me again next week as we flip things around a little bit and talk about story structure and look at the Bible in a way that perhaps you never have before. It should be a fun time, so I hope you'll tune in. Until then, keep the faith and keep writing. Keep writing.